This morning, I titled the message, Are We Living in the Last Days? And so what do you guys think about that? I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to respond. Do you think we're living in the last days? Living in the last days, probably most assuredly, we feel today, especially those of us who um, adhere to the truth and we get our definition of the last days from the scriptures, we're thinking that there's a very good possibility, yes, even maybe a certainty, that we are living in the last days. And uh, we're going to take a look at that a little bit today, specifically out of the book of, of 2 Peter. I'm going to focus in on the passage of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. Before I get there, though, I kind of want to give you guys a little bit of heads up, bracket a little bit about, and as we move through, as I move through what, I, um, what I'm speaking on today, the little blanks, I'm going to put them up on the screen for you so that you guys have an opportunity to see them and, and fill them out. So uh, that's what the PowerPoint is actually there for. So uh, before we get started, though, just to give you a little background on where is Second Peter coming from. Well, this book actually, in the first chapter, Peter actually references that he's getting ready to die. In fact, he says that the departure of me from this earth, my physical death, of which the Lord has spoken about. Can you imagine having a, a, a little talk like that? You remember what I'm talking about? Like at the end of John, he pulled, pulled Peter over. He's like, look, I want to tell you about what's going to happen to you in the future. Um, someone's going to take your hand. They're going to lead you to a place that you don't want to go. And you're going to glorify me in the way that you die. And Peter was aware that this was going to happen to him. And it was very soon. That's in 2 Peter 1.14. And he wants to leave some lasting words to encourage hope in the church and to provide some exhort, exhortation in truth that's going to equal grace and power for the hearers. He also spends um, quite a bit of time actually focusing on the fact that there's going to be some false teachers that come up. And he gives some warning about this. One of the beautiful things that I like about this letter is at the beginning of the letter, he brackets his encouragement to the church by, by telling them that he wants them to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. That's significant, especially thinking about what, uh, I know at least for those of you who were here last week, what Pastor Paul was talking about, because what is eternal life? Jesus actually defined eternal life as knowing God. So that means that eternal life is not something that we get after we die. Eternal life is not something that occurs when the resurrection happens. Eternal life is now because it equals a relationship with a very living God. And so Peter actually starts his letter in, um, in chapter 1. He says, I want grace and peace to be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and in Jesus our Lord. And so he references right off from the beginning, look at if you want grace, if you want peace, this is where we get it. I'm reminding you, he says, of what you already know, that grace and peace comes to you through the knowledge of God. And then at the end of the chapter, or at the end of the book, this is one of my very first memory verses ever. And if you haven't, if you, um, uh, haven't memorized Scripture, I would encourage you to memorize Scripture. I think it's amazing. I still remember the first week that I... Um, really put my mind to begin to memorize scripture. This is one of the scripture passages that I memorized. Another one was Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it is amazing what that can do. Um, not only in your own soul, but I saw in my own life within the very first week that, I, that um, I decided to start memorizing scripture, conversation after conversation after conversation throughout that week where God wanted me to share those scripture passages with people. I didn't have a book handy, but I was able to share those scripture passages. And it's amazing what it does. You know, the psalmist says, I hide 
your word in my heart. It has a way of transforming us. That's what the scriptures say. And, and I would encourage you in this. And at the end of chapter 3 of Second Peter, he says, again, I want you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's his exhortation to the church. He wants people to grow. The way that we do this is recognizing the promises of which that God has given unto us. We're going to look at that a little bit today, some of the distortions of some of those promises as well. And he reminds the people too of the fact that, don't forget as well that I was an eyewitness on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured and his clothes, I love how Mark records it, his clothes were made whiter than any launderer on earth could make them. And Moses and Elijah appeared up there. You remember Peter was like, dude, maybe we can make a couple of like little huts for you guys. Some, and you guys can just hang out here. And they were having a conversation. You know what that conversation was about? They were talking about the coming death of which that Jesus was going to die on the cross and how it was to glorify God. Can you imagine that? Here's Peter, James, and John. They're kind of hiding it out. Like, whoa, this is, this is wild. And they're ha- listening to Elijah and Moses and, and Jesus. And they're talking about the crucifixion that's about to occur. And he's, he reminds them of the fact as well that God appeared in a cloud and there was a great voice and we received the testimony from God that Jesus is the Son of God. And don't forget this. We received the testimony. We're eyewitnesses. We want you to have a firm foundation. In fact, Jesus says that heavens and earth will pass away, the grass withers, the flowers fade, seasons come and go, but the Word of God will not pass away. It is a sure foundation for us to build our houses on. In fact, Jesus says, if you don't build it on the truth, you're like the man who builds his house on the sand, and when the winds and the storms come, down goes your house. But if you build it on the rock of the truth, difficulties can come in our lives, and they surely do come, and it will not be blown down. And he wants to give us a sure foundation. He also gives a huge warning, as I said already, about false teachers that are going to arise. He gives a description of them how they're embracing sexual immorality, their love for money, and the rejection of authority, and by this they are denying the very master that they claim to follow, and he's giving warning about these things. He warns the churches vividly not to be swayed or enticed out of the way of righteousness and to abandon their obedience to Christ through faith. Paul gave the same word when he said um, to the church in Corinth, I don't want you to be deceived like Eve was deceived, and she had, She had the promise of simple devotion to God and the temptation came and she gave in. I don't want you to be deceived away from simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Simply know Him. Simply know Him. And Peter is exhorting them and warning them not to go away from the truth. In fact, it would be worse for us in the final judgment if we know the truth and then we walk away. And some of these, Peter has some very by the Holy Spirit, has some very difficult words for false teachers in chapter 2 about their future if they do not repent. And by the way, that's the goal. That is the goal. The fact of the matter is, is just like the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, and we are prone to wander from time to time. I believe that God's grace is sufficient to keep us, and in the case that we have uh, individuals in the church that uh, leave or look as if they're straying away from the truth, the goal of the church then is to bring them back through loving steps of reconciliation that they might... Here's a question for you. Do Christians still need the grace of repentance? 
Yes, it's not just something that happens once at the cross and now my sins are forgiven. In fact, you can see a very clear example of that with the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation where Jesus clearly tells the church, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to remember your first love and come back to me, okay? I'm standing at the door of your heart and I'm knocking. Actually, that passage is used quite frequently for evangelism. That is not an evangelistic verse, actually. That is a verse to the church to wake up and begin to fall in love with him again as we did at first, okay? And then he, he, um, it's this, pa- this book is a sobering word for people also who sit under the gospel teaching, true truth, week after week after week, and they refuse to give themselves wholly to the Lord. We have a lot of that happening um, in some areas of the world today where people are listening to the truth. In fact, um, you know, it says that they have a... a a design of godliness, but they don't have power to actually follow through on it. And so Peter is pointing and reminding us that we need to know the promises of God, that we've been made a partaker of his divine nature, that he is true truth, and he's going to see it through to the end. Okay? And that's what this book is all about. Now, let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read this passage first, and then we're going to start working through the outline that you guys have in your handouts. All right? Second Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, by the way, for those of you who might have a different translation, um, just so that you know if you're wondering. I don't want the enemy to sway you from hearing the truth just because there's a different translation. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up a sincere way, mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by By means of these, the world was then existed and deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. All right, let's take a look now. A quick survey of the last days. You can bring that up, David. A quick survey of the last days. Are we living in the last days? I'm going to give some scripture passages here that are in your outline. By the way, I do have some that are filled out, so if you're not able to... uh, I'm telling you that now, but I do have some that are filled out that you can have at the end of the service. uh, So a quick survey of the last days. Some scripture passages that speak about the last days in the Bible. What are some things that are going to occur in the last days? The first one, point number one. God speaks through his Son during the last days. This is out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, where he says, in these last days, God has chosen to speak to us, not just through prophets, not just through the scriptures, but he is proclaiming his truth through his Son. So in the last days, God is going to speak through his Son. This is kind of fun because it was already uh, spoken about. Steve actually quoted this already. Another thing that we have going on in the last days, the gospel is to be preached to the world. The gospel is to be preached to the world. Jesus actually said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached 
to the entire world, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. Okay? So during the last days, the gospel will be preached to the world. Number three, God's Spirit will be poured out. God's Spirit will be poured out. This is actually a prophecy out of the book of Joel that Peter actually references in his Pentecostal preach, in his Pentecostal message, when everyone was like, whoa, these guys are drunk, or something weird is going on over there. And you remember Peter said, no, 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 we are not drunk. It's only 10 o'clock in the morning. What you're seeing here is the promise of Joel. God's Spirit is being poured out on the sons of men and the daughters of men. And though God is spreading, and God's Spirit is promised to everyone who believes. Okay, everyone who believes. So in the last days, God's Spirit is poured out. There will be times, next point, there will be times of difficulty. This is a passage out of 2 Timothy. It says this, But understand this, that in the last days, there it is again, the word last days, there will come times of difficulty. This, one, this passage here, there's a list of difficulties that the Holy Spirit gives through Paul. And it sounds like our headlines. Turn on the news and it's right there. Is the Word of God relevant? Absolutely. Is it true? Yes. Will it pass away? No. And this is the list. For people will be lovers of self. They will be lovers of, inferred by the way, rather than lovers of God, right? Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That's the exchange that took place at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal. Don't have to look very far in the news to see that one actually happening on a regular basis. Our news industry loves to find those stories. Brutal stories. Not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. You just get this picture of eating way too much of yourself. You can't even move around. Swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people as these in the last days. We got this going on. We have this happen. Times of difficulty. Next point. Jesus actually brings this up in Matthew chapter 24. There will be false teachers. There will be false Christs. There will be war. There will be famine. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be persecution that will take place. There will be increased lawlessness and a growing coldness for the love of God among the people who name him. That's also referred to as apostasy. Just to illustrate the point, actually I thought about bringing this up later, but I'm going to put it here anyways. At the beginning of this month, in May, down in Florida, there was a meeting. This guy is a uh, pretty, I guess, a charismatic leader down in Florida. May 7th they met. His name is Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda. And he brought together some of um, his followers down there in, in Florida He's a 61-year-old former evangelical pastor. He's got followers in about 23 different countries right now. He says that he is God and that he is also the Antichrist because Satan has been done away with now and there's no longer any need to fear that. Some of his followers sport a 666 tattoo on their bodies it's part, and he recognizes that this is part of the publicity to get the message out. 
He teaches that the devil no longer exists and that Jesus, like him, is and was God incarnate, but that his, his message, the Jesus of the Scriptures, is no longer current. He also teaches that sin no longer exists. A, a former evangelical pastor, we have false teachers in our midst. Now there's a very clear example, and listen, but for the grace of God, we can fall prey to some false teaching. And the fact is, is that I think all of us, we would be unwise to say that there aren't areas of deceit in our soul where the world or our own sin or even demonic forces have introduced doctrines that are specifically targeted at keeping our heart away from simple devotion and growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're here, we're going to labor. By the grace of God, we're going to labor in truth so that we can build a firm foundation on the Word. Amen? Jesus also said that there's going to be eating, drinking, and marrying just like in the days of Noah. Just like in the days of Noah. So for those of you who get pretty excited about the attack on marriage, Jesus says it's going to exist all the way until the end. Don't know, and there is a large attack going on right now uh, in our government. Our government actually is thinking about uh, redefining marriage a little bit, away from what God's Word says. And that's not a good place to be in, but it's happening And people are going to be doing these things, having parties, going out, dancing, doing other things, getting married, just like in the day of Noah. And they didn't realize the flood was coming. And likewise, judgment is coming as well. There is a day when it will happen. And then lastly, 2 Peter 3, there will be scoffers. This is the noun form of a verb that means to deride or to mock. In fact, the New American Standard Bible actually translates it mockers. There'll be mockers in the last day who come up with their mocking and they are mocking specific things. They are showing contempt for specific teachings that are contained in the Word. Basically stating that they no longer apply or that we don't have to follow them, diminishing them or outright denying them. And when they do that, they actually are denying the Lord who they proclaim has saved them. So let's take a look at the survey of the last day scoffers. Survey of the last day scoffers. What are they scoffing at? And I'm back in 2 Peter now. What are these people scoffing at? 2 Peter. Number one, they're scoffing, verse 4, at the promise of the second coming. They're scoffing or mocking the promise of the second coming. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I'm going to come back to that verse in a little while. But the first thing that they're doing is they're saying, you know, there's been this teaching in the church over the last 2,000 years that Jesus is actually going to be coming back. And I think Peter actually got a glimpse of the fact that maybe it was going to be a little bit longer than a couple of years from the time that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father than he was going to return. In fact, later on, In the passage, Peter actually brings up a verse and he says, don't forget that God is abundantly merciful and he is displaying his mercy by withholding the return of the Lord Jesus so that the gospel might go forth and that people might be saved. Every day that Jesus doesn't come back is another day that is called today and as long as a day is called today, there's an opportunity for people to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And that's a good thing. That's a merciful God, a patient God, a loving God 
who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, okay? And so he's doing that, and they're mocking the fact that, hey, look, it, it's been a long time, that's an old doctrine, and I'm not certain that it's even true. That's what they're saying. In fact, some of them might just outright just come out. It's not going to happen. It is not happening. He's not going to physically return. We need to do what we can here on the earth, but he's not returning. There's a reason. We're going to look at that in just a minute. Why are they scoffing? But what are they scoffing at? Number one, the promise of the second coming. Inferred, it's not going to happen. Number two, they are mocking the fact that God created everything. That God created everything. That's in verse 5. For they, look at, deliberately, with intent, they deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So one of the things that they're mocking is the second coming of Christ. The second thing is, is that I'm not even certain that God created this physical existence that we're dwelling in. I'm not certain that God even created it. Well, here's some scripture passages that refute that truth. Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and, upon, and established it upon the rivers. Notice the, in the, um, the focus on water in the beginning, okay? Just like Peter focused in on. Psalm 33, 8, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, his word, all of their host. Hebrews 11.13, New Testament. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are, vis- that are visible. Revelation 4.12, in this beautiful song to God, that says, God, you be all the glory and honor and power and dominion, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and have been created. It's God's will for the creation to exist. He spoke it into existence. And then one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 1, I love this picture of Jesus. I I hope that um, your understanding of Jesus has been formed through this book and that he's not some weak, effeminate, you know, being, but he's almighty, almighty, and he fills all and is in all. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, for In Jesus, all things were created, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, and in him, all things hold together. So let me just throw out a thought there. These false teachers that come on the scene and they mock his creative right to the fact that he has created all things, he's holding their tongue together. The very tongue that they are using to deride and mock him, he is the one who is holding the molecules of their tongue together while they do that. Do you get the picture now why, why Peter, through the Holy Spirit, brings out some very harsh teaching about the end of false teachers who don't repent? He actually equates them to animals that are to be captured and destroyed. That's what he says in Second Peter chapter 2. Very hard words for false teachers. He holds everything together. The second, another thing that they're mocking, the third thing, is that previously God destroyed the earth once already. They're undermining the fact that the flood actually took place. That the flood actually took place, okay? And that's actually in um, verse 6. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
and perished. So they're mocking three things. Number one, the promise of the fact that Jesus is coming back. Number two, that God created them and everything else. And number three, that God destroyed the earth once already with a flood. And can I sum that up? The real key there is the judgment. The real key is the judgment. They're denying the fact that God is going to judge the world in righteousness in, in a day. And that is going to take place partially when Jesus returns. Peter actually doesn't reference some of the details there, but he gives us a very good picture in verse 7. By the same word that the heavens and the earth now exist, they are stored up for fire. Now there's a whole message right there on global warming. All right? That I think our nation needs to hear. And it won't be today, though. It's going to happen. When people ask me, do I believe in global warming? I tell them, absolutely, I believe in global warming. Have you read Second Peter chapter 3? It's going to happen. I don't have a problem with some of that stuff at all, actually. All right. Why? Well, did Jesus teach that the flood actually occurred? Did he mention it? He did. He actually mentioned it in two places. It's recorded in the Gospels for us, once in Matthew 24, and then again in Luke 17. He did teach that the flood actually occurred, that God judged the earth once already. And then again in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter mentions the flood. He says that God did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with, by the way, there's a, there's a new movie coming out. Be aware of philosophies in movies. They're teaching stuff. They are teaching strong things. In fact, um, you guys might be surprised to hear this, but um, I've been itching about this for a while, but I think I might one of these days actually write it. The movie Happy Feet, I believe, is a direct attack against Christianity. And uh, there's a lot of stuff in that movie that philosophically is, is mocking historical Christianity. And just be aware of that, because if you have your kids watching that, you need to be able to combat some of those truths with the scriptures of what's actually true, okay? And there's other things as well. They have a new, a new uh, Bruce Almighty coming out, Evan Almighty, which is a, a take on the flood. And um, they also have, just think, this, these are philosophies, by the way, and don't think that they're not coming from people and maybe even from demonic entities trying to undermine the truth of God's word and the reality of the judgment. And there was a made-for-TV movie about the flood, too. I remember watching it. And Noah was on his ark, and he was floating around. And then some people showed up on a dinghy. They were like out on a dinghy somewhere, like, hey, what's up? Because there's a common idea that either the flood was localized or that other people even survived. And God says only eight people survived, right here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Noah and seven others. His, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Eight people survived the judgment of the flood. And that's it. That's what the Bible teaches. Do you believe it? Okay. So why are these scoffers scoffing? Why are they mocking? Peter actually gives us the answer. He gives us the answer. It's up a little bit higher. Did you catch it? Verse 3. Why are they mocking? Why are they scoffing? They're scoffing so that they can follow their own sinful desires. I put up there, they want to walk in their own lusts. That's the reason why they're mocking the truth. In fact, it's the direct result. They have to do it. They have to do this. Why? To justify their moral disobedience. They have to scoff at the truth that Jesus is coming back, 
They have to scoff at the truth that God created them and he is Elohim and he has full right and reign over them to dictate what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, and what is beautiful and what is ugly. (laughs) We have distorted versions of what is beautiful and what is ugly. And the closer we get to the truth, the more we'll see it. The fact of the matter is, is sometimes, even within the church, we begin to exalt unrighteousness. They want to walk in their own lust. Jude actually records almost word for word by the Holy Spirit the exact same admonition in Jude 1. Actually, there's only one chapter, so you could say Jude 17 or 18, or Jude 1, 17 and 18. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, in the last days, there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions. See, they have a goal. They're nurturing their ungodly passions. And thus they are forced into a position where they must scoff and mock at things. So what are these lusts that they're following hard after? What are these lusts that they're following hard after? What are the passions that they're living in? Number one, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Second Peter chapter 2, he says this, Many will follow their own, speaking of false teachers in the church, Many will follow their own sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. Question, is this happening? Are there church leaders that are falling prey to sexual immorality and the way of the truth being blasphemed and maligned? It is happening, my friends. Do we have an answer The Bible teaches that immorality is in our heart. I have a whole lot to say about that whole issue because I believe the scriptures teach that sexual immorality, this is important, sexual immorality, do you think it's an issue in in our country? Okay. Sexual immorality, I believe the Bible teaches, is directly proportional to our level and depth of idolatry. Sexual immorality is directly proportional in a people group to the level of their idolatry. They have abandoned God, and, and what, what happens when we abandon God? We begin to live in the lust of our flesh. Jesus said that immorality exists here. Immorality exists in my heart. What is the answer to immorality in my heart? I need to go through a circumcision, and that circumcision is the cross of Christ. It must be cut off. It must be crucified. And we have people out there that are teaching, no, this is the way that you are. You know, don't, don't deny your, yourself. That's an old religion. That's an old way. Or under happy feet, let him dance. Or don't let him dance. We've we got to follow the old ways, right? And it happens. People teach that, that that's wrong. You know, don't listen to that stuff. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots, back to Peter, They are blots and blemishes. They are reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They're hanging out in the church. They're going to small groups. And behind the scenes, or sometimes even up in in front of everyone, they're living in immorality. They have a form of godliness, but they don't have the power to overcome it. Why? 
Why is that? They want to follow in their passions. Actually, the reality of it is, is that they love, they love their iniquity more than they love God. That's the real issue. It's an issue of pleasure. They take more pleasure in their sin than they do in God. Number two, the love of money. Second Peter 2, 3 and 14 says, In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They have hearts that they have trained in greed. In Colossians, it says that greed is idolatry. That's what it says. Greed equals idolatry. Sexual immorality equals idolatry. We have a lot of idols in this world, in the, in the America, and sometimes even in the American church, and even though they might not be physical idols, we got them. They are there. And these people are teaching and they're gathering and lining their pockets with the money of those whose ears they are tickling. Hey, you don't have to worry about the judgment. You don't have to worry about the judgment. It's all right, man. Jesus isn't coming back. God didn't create you. I want to tickle your ears. And by the way, don't forget that if you like what I'm telling you, you can make your checks payable to blah, 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 and just you know, send them to my account. And they're getting rich on false teaching. Better to be poor and impoverished and die in famine and nakedness than to go down that road. That's the truth of the matter. And the last thing is the rejection of authority. This is why they're scoffing. They reject authority. Why are they rejecting authority? Because all authority comes from God and they're not wanting to live underneath it. Now listen, it's important. Todd, I'm sorry. They want to be all this. That's exactly right. And the reality of it is, is that the church who is remaining true to God's word, we need to be lovingly reconciliatory to these individuals and hope that God brings them the grace of repentance so that they can turn from their ways. God doesn't take delight in the death of a sinner. He really does not. And we ought not to either. However, the reality of it is, I don't want you to be unaware of what's happening. And... I'm pointing out some big issues, but the reality of it, there's some other issues where worldly philosophies have worked their way into our hearts and we need to be uh, using the truth to extricate them and have them cut off. I want to come underneath the blade in some of those areas. You know what I'm talking about? I need some of these appendages to be removed so that I might live fully for, for God while I, on the short time that I'm here on the earth. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, bring up the next slide, will you, for me, David? Oh, yeah, this is fun. I have a quiz for you all. I didn't tell you I was going to give you a quiz. This is not in your handout, but go ahead and bring up the, the, the answers there. Which was created first? The earth, the sun, or both were created at the same time? Just think about it. You don't have to yell it out. I don't want to embarrass anybody. The earth or the sun or both were created at the same time? Go ahead and bring up the answer there, David. All right, the earth. The earth was created on God's creative day number one. The sun actually didn't come about until day four, actually. Okay, bring up the next one. Which was created first? The sun, trees, plants, and vegetation, or both were created at the same time? All right, bring it up. Um, You're skipping... Okay. Trees, plants, and vegetation. Listen, this is important. Do you believe that? Do you believe the gospel is recorded in the scriptures? 
Okay, well, the same scriptures teach that plants actually were created before the sun. How could that be? Don't plants need to photosynthesize to exist? How did plants get created before the sun actually was created? Because that's how God deemed it to be. That's how he spoke it to be. Do you believe it? All right, bring up the next one. Which is created first? The stars, the earth, or both were created at the same time? Okay, David? The earth. Stars were not created until the fourth creative day. Until the fourth creative day. They were actually created at the same time that the sun and the moon were created, and the earth was created on day one. Okay, bring up the next one, Dave. Which was created first? Waters, dry land, or both were created at the same time? Okay. Waters. Dry land did not appear on the earth until day three. It appeared on the earth because God spoke it to be so. I want the waters to gather up in specific areas, and I want earth to, be, to come forth, and God called the dry ground earth. That's where we get the name earth, by the way. God gave it to it. Okay, next one. Where do we get our day from? From the calendar? We actually get our day actually from the rotation of the earth. God actually put the earth on an axis and he actually is the one who spun it and one day is one full rotation of the earth, right? Isn't that what, I mean, that's where we get it from. One rot- okay, next one, David. Where do we get our month from? Actually, our month comes from the moon. It comes from the moon, actually. Now, we operate on a different sort of a calendar. Some of you may have calendars at home where they actually show the new moons. But in olden days, and even in the Bible, it talks about the fact that we have new moons, right? And so the calendars were lunar in nature. That's where we got our months from, lunar. Okay, next question. Where do we get our year from? Our calendar. I love that answer, Todd. It is from the sun. It's one full orbit of the earth around the sun. One complete orbit of the earth around the sun. That's where we get our year from. Okay, where's the, what's, what's the next question? Where do we get our week from? I love this one. Where does the week come from? Hey, is the whole earth operating on a week? Most people are operating on a week. They actually are. Where does it come from? It comes from the creative week, my friends. There is no astrological... Isn't that awesome? If I had candy, I would give it out too, Neri. <laughs> I love bribing kids. <laughs> there is no lunar or solar or earthly or star thing that gives us a week. The reason why our calendars are arranged in a week because that's how God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. And that's where the week comes from. Isn't that going to be a testimony for people who deny God? He's going to ask them, did you live on a week? Were you off on weekends? (laughs) That's how I created the heavens and the earth. I love creation actually shouts that God is very real and that he is very powerful. Denying that God created everything and destroyed the earth in judgment once already is a necessary step in denying the assurance of the second coming. It's going to happen. 
They have to do it. But God has done this. What, is it, was it difficult for God to disrupt the scientific order of things when he flooded the earth once already? I don't think so. I don't think it was very difficult for him. He spoke everything into existence in six days. He probably just looked down with his finger and was just like, whoop, and just shifted the earth a little bit or whatever he did. It was not a difficult thing. It was difficult in his heart because he was grieved that he had made man and man had become so wicked. But um, it was not difficult for him to disrupt scientific theories of the day. And do you think it's going to be difficult for him to disrupt the scientific theories of the day by rolling up the earth's atmosphere and allowing his sun to appear in all of his glory? No. Although some scientists might be surprised by it in that day. All right. <laughs> Ask me that question after, after the... Actually, no, I don't think he wiped out the earth because of dinosaurs. Um, no. By the way, just sidebar, Creation Museum opened this weekend in Kentucky, and it's getting some... Um, actually, there was a plane flying over it with a banner that said, Thou shalt not lie. And uh, it's getting... Actually, it was the number one story yesterday on Yahoo about the Creation Museum, and they're teaching creation from, from a biblical standpoint at that museum. They've invested millions and millions of dollars in their displays down there. And uh, science, actually some of the quotes that I was reading were pretty interesting because they were saying, you can't have people making a, a museum like this that teach God created the earth in six days? What is this going to do to the kids? They're going to go to school and they're going to tell their teachers, well, you know, I went to this museum that says that God created the heaven and the earth in six days and not 80 billion years. What's going to happen? You know, and inferred, like, watch out. Okay, I put on the, on the back of your handout this really sweet chart, which I don't have time to go into. I wish I had more time to go into it, but I don't. All it is is a visual picture of, a visual picture of the ages from the creation of Adam. The years are all in Genesis 1 through 14. Okay, they're all there. The creation of Adam, Adam it gives you a visual picture of... Um, of their lifespans, actually. Ever wondered why, why did Methuselah live to be 969 years old? What's up with that? By the way, another piece of, uh, of information that I shove in my mind that I don't know why it's there, his name actually means his death shall bring. And the Jews actually believed that Enoch walked so, so close with God that when Methuselah was born, Enoch actually, God told him that when your son dies, I'm bringing the judgment. And so he named him Methuselah. His death shall bring. Can you imagine what it was like trying to raise him? Get over here. Dude, get, get off that chair. <laughs> if he dies, the judgment is coming. Okay? That's what the Jews actually believe. But what I wanted to point out here, there's some very interesting information um, about, look at the flood and then the reduction of lifespan. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Some people are like, well, why do people live so long in the Bible? That just can't be true. And obviously there's something going on there. Flood, lifespans, right? Uh, very interestingly, in the news here, just, frequent, just uh, two weeks ago, there was a huge cavern that was found in Illinois here with like the earliest limestone copies of fir trees that have ever been found, a huge cavern, and they're from like billions and billions of years ago. Chances are what, what happened was when God disrupted the earth, they were buried, cataclysmically buried due to the flood. Okay? That's why they have fossils on the top of the highest mountains because the whole earth was covered with water. Uh, what I wanted to show here is that sometimes we, for, I wanted to, to illustrate the faithfulness of God. 
Look at, look at the age of Noah compared to Abraham. How, were they alive at the same time on the earth? Yes. In fact, Noah died when Abraham was 60 years old. Was, was Noah a preacher of righteousness? Yes, he was a preacher of righteousness. Was he saved by faith? According to the scriptures, we believe that he was saved by faith. Has God ever left a generation without a testimony of his way of redemption? Never. He is completely faithful. All right, and that's all I want to point out with that chart. You might have some fun with it, though. There's some very interesting information on it. And like you got, it's just an illustration of ages as illustrated in Genesis. All right, I'm going to, almost through here, this is the good part. Go ahead and bring up the next slide, David. The fact of the matter is, is that Christ will return. All right, now, that was a good place for an amen. So we're going to do it again. Christ will return. Amen. He is coming back. It's not an option. It is going to happen. Why? How, how can Carrie be so confident that I'm going to tell him, like, the scroll of the sky is going to be rolled up and the Son of Man is going to appear in all of his glory in flaming fire with angels, with horses, with swords, with all kinds of pomp and circumstances. There's going to be a shout of an archangel. There's going to be trumpets blowing. It's going to be huge. And not one person on the earth when this takes place is going to be like, did you hear something, honey? Could you turn the TV down? The TV is just blocking. I thought maybe I heard something outside. Maybe we should go outside and take a look. I don't know. No, everyone will know. How do we know this to be true? Number one, Jesus said he would return. Actually, I have that in the present tense. Jesus says. Why? Because he's very much alive. And he's still proclaiming the truth every day. I am going to return. John 14, 3. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon. When he ascended, um, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, says that two men in white robes, were standing next to the disciples, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You ever wonder what it's going to look like? It's going to look exactly like the ascension in reverse, but with more stuff going down. A lot more stuff going down. But it is going to look like the ascension in reverse. All right, number two, the scriptures say he will return. The scriptures say he will return. In Matthew 26, 64, I love this passage. It's sad, but it's beautiful at the same time. Caiaphas looked at Jesus, and one of his, he had like seven different trials that he went through. Each one of them were a mockery. Each one of them were, was not just, but he had to die for our sins. Caiaphas looked at him and said, look it, are you the Messiah? Are you the king? Are you the one that we have been waiting for? And Jesus looked at him and said, I have, told, I have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He was actually quoting out of Daniel chapter 7. Amazing passage out of Daniel chapter 7 that Caiaphas was um, very aware of. Very aware of. And in Daniel chapter 7, it says this, I saw in the night visions, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, 
nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which does not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the picture of the dream when that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had was this picture of a giant statue, and the last kingdom was the huge rock that crushed all the other kingdoms. And it existed forever and ever. And Caiaphas knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He said, look it, I know you know this passage in Daniel. And I know that you know that that passage is, a, is only for the Messiah. And I'm telling you, from here on out, I'm going to be the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of God. And you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. And my kingdom will be established. Not because of just me, but because this is the way that my Father has decreed it to be so. And Caiaphas got pretty upset, and that was one of the reasons why they justified crucifying him, by the way, because they felt like it was a false claim. We don't believe that to be a false claim. And then, of course, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, there's a picture of Jesus coming back in flaming fire. It says, dealing out retribution to those who do not listen, who do not know him, can I, can I change that up and say that if knowledge of God, knowledge of Jesus is eternal life, he will deal out retribution to those who do not have eternal life, who have not believed on the gospel. And in the book of Revelation, it says that the destruction, that he's going to gather the birds of the heavens together. And the destruction is going to be so intense when he returns that the blood of some men will be up to the bridles of the horses that they were writing. You don't want to find yourself on the wrong side of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And of course we have the picture in Revelation 19, I saw heaven opened, and behold, on a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, some believe that that's going to be you and me, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he is about establishing a righteous kingdom where he will rule and reign. But there's some judgment that's going to need to take place first. And there's some amazing things that he's going to do as well. Actually, Peter doesn't cover some of that stuff like the millennial kingdom. Some beautiful stuff. He goes right to the end. He goes, destruction of the earth. Doesn't mean that he's, he's not teaching the truth. He's just saying they need to deny the judgment. And there is a partial judgment that takes place when Jesus returns to the earth and sets up, I believe he does need to set up an earthly kingdom here to fulfill some scriptural prophecies that have not been fulfilled yet by the Messiah. And when he comes back, there's going to be some severe judgment of those on the earth who have not believed. And then in the end, Satan will be released after having been bound. And then the end will come. A severe judgment on the earth and the opening up of the great white throne judgment and the resurrection of every human being who has ever lived and they will be judged according to what is written in the books according to their deeds and those who have done good 
to a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to a resurrection of condemnation. The condemnation that was designed and incurred for the devil by the way the lake of fire and brimstone actually already exists, and it was created by God for the devil and his angels. But it is also the end resting place of all who have rejected the way of salvation that God has provided. The scriptures say he will return. And lastly, the Holy Spirit bears witness in our hearts that he will return. Last week, Paul preached a scripture passage. This is pretty sad to me, and I'm going to illustrate this for a second. I heard last week in Paul's message that although he loves all of us, he doesn't know if we're all saved as our pastor. And that actually is a pretty heavy-duty burden to bear. And, um, you know, that I believe that was a message from the Lord, but the reality of it is, is that sometimes I think church leaders get to that point where they give a message like that from God because, in general, the church itself, I'm not saying our church, in general, the church itself is not bearing fruit. It's hard to determine whether or not an individual... In fact, he even said last week, only you know your own heart, but the reality of it is there is fruit that exists in those who have been raised from the dead. Lazarus proclaimed the goodness of God. Okay? And when we get to the point where the church leaders are saying, well, I don't know if, you're, if, if, if we're all saved, it's because they are looking not at our hearts, but at the fruit of which that we're bearing. I remember one pastor saying, hey, I'm not judging anyone, I'm just a fruit inspector. And I'm actually illustrating what I'm seeing in the fields. And um, one of the fruits of a true converted, blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled believer is that they will have an eager anticipation for the coming of the Lord Jesus. When you think about the second coming, are you wanting him to hold off on it? When you think about the second coming, are you... Is it a scary thing? I hope God doesn't catch me when I'm doing my taxes. Like, not, not scary from the standpoint of the fear of the Lord. I believe the first time I see Jesus, I'm going to fall down dead and he's going to have to raise me like a third or fourth time. I don't know how many times he raises me, but he's going to have to touch me and raise me back up. You know, it's a, it's a fearful thing to see the Lord. However, we have in our hearts a desire to see him. And I, uh, there's a Chris Rice song it's a pretty sad song. It's about a husband who loses his wife and he's singing about her going to heaven before him and there's a lyric in that song where he says, say hey to Jesus and tell him that I'm missing him. Tell him that I'm missing him. And the first time I heard that song, I was like, man, I am sick sometimes inside because I am missing someone who I have never met, ever. I've never met him in the flesh, but my heart longs to to be with him. Does your heart long to be with the Lord? That's a demonstration of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we eagerly await a Savior. We are waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, you wait for his Son from heaven who will deliver us from the wrath to come. 2 Timothy 4.8 Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
Titus 2.13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28, Jesus will come a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says a similar thing when he quotes and says that we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt and burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Oh, the day when sin is purged and death, and we hear that word, that death has been swallowed up in victory, the full salvation of our Savior and God, Jesus Christ, has been revealed, and it is now, he is now making his dwelling place among men in a new heaven and a new earth. This hope is a hope that will purify you. What are you putting your hope in? Are you worried about your bank account? Are you filled with worry about what's going to happen tomorrow? Then your hope is placed in the wrong area, friends. This hope is a hope that purifies. This hope is a hope that says, you know what? I'm going to live by faith, just like Stephen Ann. I don't know where the money's going to come, but I'm going to follow God. I'm going to follow hard after him. This is the sort of hope that those of you with money actually free it up, and rather than spending it on your own pleasures which are going to burn anyway, some of those things. Not that we shouldn't enjoy some of that stuff. But you could free some of that money to send people into all the world and hasten the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not denying the fact that he's coming, but encouraging it by preaching the gospel to all the world. Amen? I have on here a reference with a bunch of scriptures on the day of the Lord. If we had like six more hours, I would cover them, and I don't. But I thought maybe you guys would like to read some of them. And some of them are awfully Scary, in a fearful way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is also the beginning of wisdom. Healthy respect. Lastly, how do we apply this? Three G's. Guard against the lies. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and glorify the Lord. Guard against the lies. Have you escaped some of the lies? By the way, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't fill this all in, but um, I have some slides on here. We don't have time to go through them right now, but I personally feel, and this is just Carrie speaking now, not from the scriptures, but just Carrie speaking, I believe that Peter was prophesying the coming of evolutionary theory. The reason why I believe that is because he says they deliberately overlook the fact that God created everything, and they say, for ever since our fathers fell asleep, everything's been continuing the same. Death has always existed. We are always changing this is always happening the same and same, and I think that these false teachers have bought into a lie. And uh, that's just my personal feeling on that. But have you escaped the lies? Have you believed some of them? The way that we guard ourselves is by immersing ourselves in the truth and growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus and glorifying the Lord. Do you have a desire to honor and reflect the beauty of the Lord in every area of your life? This last year we were having a family devotion around our, um, we usually do it sometimes after our meals, and the devotion was actually on can you drink orange juice and sin? Can you drink orange juice and sin? 
And the basic gist of the story is, is it says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or in whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. And the question was, can I actually dishonor God through what I believe to be an amoral act? Drinking a glass of orange juice. And the, you know what the answer is? The answer is yes. The answer is I can drink a glass of orange juice and I can dishonor God. I can go and exercise my body and I can be filled with idolatry in it. I'm going to drink this orange juice because I want to be healthy. I want to, now, don't get me wrong. You see, there's a whole different method to saying I want to be healthy because I want to take care of the temple that God has given unto me and saying I'm, I am all about me. I am all about me. Are you desiring to honor and reflect the beauty of the Lord in every area of your life? So whether you eat or whether you drink or in whatever you do, whether you drink orange juice or you eat this food, that you're doing it for the glory of God. Hopefully you have that passion inside yourself. And if you do those things, if you put your mind to it and God's grace is available, you will not fall prey to the false teachings that are out there. Let's pray. Lord, we just give you thanks for your word. And we thank you that Jesus has enabled us in such a way that we can um, drink orange juice to the glory of God. And much more than that, give us a firm foundation. Help us to be aware of the lies. Help us to combat the lies, to be fully dressed in all of our armor that we need so that we can be adequate and equipped for every good work which you've prepared us for. And Lord, hasten the day. Hasten the day of your return. We ask that you would be patient most of us have fa- friends and families that are, that are still not saved yet, God, and we would ask that you would have mercy on them. So one sense, we say we're eagerly awaiting you because our hearts long to be with you and we miss you intensely. And another part of us, likewise, just like you, says, Lord, I think you could wait another day so that another person can come into the kingdom and be born again and escape the wrath to come. Lord, Lift up people to speak your word in truth and not to fall prey to the lust of the flesh and dishonor you, but rather let them be spent for the glory of all that you are, for you're worth it. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said,